This is the Echo Chamber PR podcast, brought to you by the Homes Report and TVC Group. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber PR podcast from the Homes Report. My name is Arun Sudharman, editor of the Homes Report, and uh, as always, I'd like to thank TVC Group for helping to produce today's show, which is uh, actually episode 15 of the Echo Chamber, and in fact, Mark's over a year now of doing the show. Very happy today. We are joined by Ruth Barnett, who is VP of Global Communications at SwiftKey. Ruth, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you. Perhaps before we get started talking about some of the issues that are bubbling up in the news, you could maybe let us know a little bit about what you do at SwiftKey. I mean, I think probably most of our listeners will be aware that it's, certainly from my opinion, a very cool app, which has kind of transformed the way I type on my smartphone. So SwiftKey uses artificial intelligence to guess what you're going to say next. And it sounds like you're using our Android keyboard, which is actually the global bestseller for the paid Android apps. And it learns from everything you write to predict what you're going to say next. And we also launched an iPhone and iPad app called SwiftKey Note a month ago, which is for faster note taking. So really, SwiftKey's there to make your life faster and easier when you're typing on your mobile. But also behind that, it's a really complex and very exciting area of science that we're leading in. But really, it's my job to go out there and talk about that and make what's a very high-tech science actually apply to people's real lives and be a bit more accessible and a bit more mainstream. Because sometimes bandying artificial intelligence terms around isn't always the most accessible thing if you're just browsing an app store and want to buy something useful. So my role really is to try and explain what those things are and what they do, because it sounds like very dense technology. And it comes from, you know, one of our founders did a doctorate in an area called natural language processing, which is a form of kind of artificial intelligence and how we apply it. And that can be quite impenetrable and not very appealing to a mainstream audience. So one of the things I'm here to do is talk a bit more about why that helps people. And as you've said, it makes you type easier, it helps you type faster One of the big things for me is it always recognises that my surname is probably going to follow my first name. And all of those tiny things that when you're using your phone a lot for business emails or your personal communications, um, those things really matter. And I think what we're seeing is a kind of evolution in the way people see their phones. And they don't want a generic experience that has a kind of one-size-fits-all dictionary in it. They want something that's very, very responsive to them and their lives. And that's really what SwiftKey's a pioneer in. So my mission really is to take that more mainstream, bring that to more people. Many people don't know that you can change the keyboard on your Android phone, for example. Mm. So we're really trying to raise awareness of being a bit more empowered about the technology that you use. And you don't have to put up with a default experience if it doesn't suit you. Mm -hmm. You can go for something a bit more targeted to you. Mm. Interesting. So let's talk a little about your background because it's quite interesting. How long have you been at SwiftKey now? So it's coming up to two years. Okay. And before that, you were... At Sky, correct? Yeah, so I'd always been a journalist before Mm. that. In fact, SwiftKey really is the first office I've ever worked in because I'd always come from newsrooms. Right, Which is a really different culture. That must be a pleasant change, no? (laughs) Well, there's an extraordinary thing about tech companies because Mm. they are so dedicated to keeping their high-end engineers. They work so hard at that retention question. Mm. Whereas in journalism, we know that there's kind of a different supply and demand problem where Mm. there are many, many more people um, who want to come into the industry than there's room for. Mm. Um, And I think that that can lead to a little bit more of a uh, rough and ready work atmosphere. But I had, you know, a very Mm -hmm. positive experience. I had a great time. I did a lot of interesting projects um, at Sky. Mm -hmm. I feel really lucky to have been part of that. Um, 
but I just started to get that kind of itchy feet about doing something a bit more dramatic mm. and making a bit of a change and learning something new. So that was one of the main catalysts when Swiftkey came calling. Mm. Um, and I was so captivated by what they wanted to achieve in the scale of that ambition that it just kind of niggled mm -hmm. at me till I decided to make the change and do it. Not many bean bags in, uh, in newsrooms. No, nor ping pong tables <laughs> and smoothies uh, and PhDs, I think. Interestingly, at Sky, you were, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but you were, I think, the first so-called Twitter correspondent. Your job at one point was to cover Twitter? Yeah, so in 2009, we came up with this title, mainly as a reflection of how we were already working in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just to cover stories that were emerging about Twitter mm. or on those platforms. It was also to work out how we use those tools in the newsroom. Mm. So I spent a lot of time sitting down with people who either worked on the planning desk or they were foreign correspondents and seeing how these tools could work for them. And it was also about us broadcasting what we were doing and engaging with mm -hmm. our kind of audience on Twitter and being a little bit more two-way rather than the sort of traditional broadcast model. Mm -hmm. And also sourcing guests, anecdotes, Mm. great stories you know a lot of breaking news comes from mm -hmm. twitter first and we're yeah. so that's so normalized now mm. but back in even 2009 that was a really really new concept that yeah. when when there'd be a you know a plane crash or something dramatic like that you'd right. the first thing you'd be able to do is source if anyone's mentioned it or if anyone's in the area or the raid on osama bin laden a very famous example of someone accidentally live tweeting that not knowing what they what yeah. they were witnessing sure um but yeah, it got a, a lot of attention in the industry at the time, but I think mm. it was reflective of something that we've really been vindicated of, which is understanding how to apply these tools is mm -hmm. really important if you're going to stay on top of uh, you know, modern technology and how your audience wants to engage with you. Mm. Um, so yeah, it got a little bit of uh, a chuckle, I think, in the industry when we came out with that title. But our mission really had always been to make that role redundant. Our view was that one person needed to take ownership of that, teach everyone try and get a sense of the best practice. But then by the end of that, you have an, a fully uh, social media newsroom with everyone able to use the tools in their own way. And I think that's kind of stage we got to by about a year later. Mm. Was there much resistance? In, in particular, I'm thinking from some of the, maybe the more senior, older journalists who now I, I assume are all on Twitter. But back then it, it still was... I, I, I recall this idea that Twitter was just about telling people what you had for breakfast. Completely. I, I wouldn't say it's an age thing, though, mm. at all. And some of the really experienced veteran journalists got it immediately and have been brilliant at it. I think I saw it as our job to explain how it applied to what they were doing and how it actually applied to some of the most serious news moments of their careers, not just letting them into the kind of personalities in the newsroom. Mm. I wasn't so interested in them building a bond over whether they had a coffee this morning. And I think what we found really worked was a few months into the role we had the Iranian election crisis mm -hmm. where on the one hand we had a whole load of voices coming from Tehran or coming from people who were aware of the situation but on the outside using social media to communicate as all of the kind of traditional media was shut down censored and, and mm. unable to communicate and we had a very veteran journalist Tim Marshall in the field out there you know who slowly becomes unable to use the kind of big broadcasting equipment that they're used to and has a phone and SMS mm -hmm. and he is able to was able to live tweet what he was seeing in Tehran straight into our website no filter mm -hmm. straight onto the you know tickers on the television channel wow. and I think moments like that helped the newsroom see this is about breaking serious news faster and better and not just about 
you know, being down with the kids about X Factor on a Saturday night. Mm. And I think once we had that moment, everyone could see the power of, this is just a different form of broadcasting. Mm. Sometimes you do it through um, a camera, sometimes you do it through a desktop computer and a web article, and sometimes you do it through your phone on the go when no other technology will fit. Has its growth as a editorial platform surprised you with Twitter? I mean, you know, it's, it's not long, it's five years since then, but it has become just a default channel now, I think, for breaking news. I think it's perfect for the journalist mindset where mm. you want everything instantly. You need to be on top of everything. And I think it's made that much easier if you can work out ways of filtering out some of the noise mm. um, than it ever used to be. I think one of the things we used to struggle with at Sky was we found it very, very useful for staying abreast of things. We found it very useful for communicating our own scoops and breaking news. But we were always really aware that it's not necessarily representative of everyone. And just because you're engaging mm. fully on with a Twitter audience doesn't mean that you're engaging fully with the whole of your audience in the UK or abroad. Mm. Because it's still a subset of people who tend to be either in the media or politics or the kind of mm. industries around that who the care a lot chamber. about breaking news. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about stepping out of the newsroom is realizing that many people's working lives does not involve sitting, watching a stream of moments occur. Mm. You know, that is very distinct to some of our roles and some of our jobs. Whereas friends of mine who, you know, are doctors or lawyers or whatever are not spending every moment on these platforms. And actually mm. they're wanting to dip in and out in a lunch break or a coffee break. And how do you make the content serviceable in those moments is still a kind of question that we're all struggling to answer as brands or as journalists. Indeed. How do you feel about Twitter's development as a platform generally, you know, because I think they're still looking to um, make more money. And so I guess that requires some sort of a balance, perhaps, between the editorial aspects and whatever the commercial aspects might be, uh, thinking of promoted tweets here. I mean, do you see that as being somewhere that they are likely to just focus more and more attention? I mean, naturally, they're a business and they've got mm. to plan for their long-term future, and there's no getting around that. I think what's been really bold with what they've done is they've kept it so simple. Mm. And that initial idea when they launched is still the same initial idea now, and they haven't tried to overcomplicate that. And I still... One of the first things I do in the morning is just look at my Twitter stream. It's the first way that I can tell if something dramatic's happened or funny's happened and, you know, passes the time when you put the kettle on. And keeping so true to that, I think, has been really powerful for them. Mm. And they're always going to be a bit at risk of the next big thing coming and sweeping it away, as all of us in a kind of tech space are. I think the promoted tweets area is an interesting one. I think that they're trying to get that right balance between accepting that there are brands that want to give them money and that there are ways that actually that can be useful to an audience and ways that are not offensive to an audience. You know, I don't mind if I'm looking at a Twitter stream of, say, the Oscars, that a couple of the ones at the top might be trying to offer me something useful from a brand that's connected to the show. Mm. That doesn't interrupt my experience. I think it's the same problem that everyone's got all over the place, which is the most successful moments are the most hard to monetize. You know, the mm. moments for brands where something really takes off often isn't in the form of a promoted tweet. It's either a piece of content going viral or someone saying something about them. And they may never be able to control that part of it. And mm. I think that's a challenge for Twitter to stay on the same side as its audience, which is its bread and butter. If you don't get the eyeballs onto that content, the brands are going to disappear, but also finding ways to help teach the brands how to make the most of those platforms and, and get a good result. And balancing the two is the same challenge. Every, mm -hmm. you know, broadcast platform, journalism platform, they're facing the same question. Mm. It's interesting because you're seeing a lot of brands now 
put quite a lot of resource behind being spontaneous. So it's almost like a type of rehearsed spontaneity. I think Oreo is probably the best example. A year ago, they came out with that tweet during the Super Bowl blackout. It was massively successful, or at least it was successful as a tweet. I've actually seen some stuff this week from one of their uh, marketing VPs saying that as a marketing tactic, it was it wasn't actually that successful, but it was very successful in terms of the traffic it got and the retweets and so on. And so many companies and brands trying to mimic that success and have set up these uh, these kind of grandiosely titled war rooms to help them jump onto things, whether it's Super Bowl, the Oscars we've just seen. Do you feel like there's a risk that they're just not going to be able to kind of capture that lightning in a bottle, especially when it comes to something that's supposed to be quite organic? I think it's a real challenge for brands and the ones who are able to make themselves as responsive and nimble as that may well be rewarded, but there's always risk with that. You're probably not going to have everyone in the room that would normally make decisions around big campaigns and you've got to take the decision with confidence that you're going to put this out there on the fly and see how it works. I think those who can still retain that flexibility will earn quite a lot of goodwill from consumers who are Mm -hmm. probably a bit tired of seeing very rehearsed long-term advertising campaigns that can look quite controlled. But capturing virality is, you know, the hardest question that any of us face. I mean, I remember as a journalist when PRs would come to me and go, oh, we're launching a great viral video on Monday. (laughs) And you just think there's, you know, that's a complete contradiction in terms. Mm. Come back to me when it's viral or I'll notice when it's viral. And there's so much hubris in thinking that whatever you're going to put out there is going to be a soar away success. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting the point as well about whether... How do we measure the success of these moments? Getting those headlines and we're talking about it now, that's definitely a form of brand success. Mm -hmm. They've earned themselves a reputation for being, you know, really in tune with what their customers are thinking at that moment and part of a kind of cultural moment. But does that relate to sales? And I think Mm -hmm. that's the same question a lot of us ask. And I mean, one of the secrets of the newsroom, I think, about these social media platforms is that the spikes in traffic that these things drive to you as a brand or you as a news organization are not always as high as popular culture assumes. Mm. I mean, it was always a bit of a truth at Sky that if the numbers of web traffic went off the scale, it was the Drudge Report. It meant you'd been linked to by the Drudge Report, which is, you know, a symbol of the 1990s. Mm. And that was still true you know, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So unless you manage to capture that moment where the whole nation wants to talk about the same one thing and you make the perfect intervention into that conversation that's well-received by people who are watching a sports game who aren't sitting wanting to talk about biscuits, um, you know, it's probably not going to get you the results as a marketing campaign. And how to allocate the resources is a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not unheard of, I guess, for brands and marketers to jump onto a bandwagon. Uh, once they see the success that another brand has had. I suppose what I've noticed when I've seen some of these brands, and they really do so much now around the big events, is how contrived the tweets are, the communication is, the attempts at humor, the attempts to jump onto whatever the, uh, the, the big trend might be, whether it's, for example, Pharrell's hat at the Grammys or someone's speech at the Oscars. I mean, from a brand perspective, why do they do that? I mean, why do they not realize that they do look contrived and that there's a risk to that as well. I mean, I think everyone always thinks they're going to be the one that's different, don't they? Mm. And I can so imagine the meetings, the planning meetings, where you think you've hit on a great idea and you're going to come out with the witticism that's going to set the internet alight. Mm. Um, But it's so hard to translate that into action. And actually, I think it's a good question for brands about what are the sign-off processes of some of these ideas? Because if you have 12 
you know, stakeholders, to use the jargon around a table, you're probably going to take off all of the rough edges of an idea that might have actually made it interesting mm. to the point where you end up with these kind of bland, uh, you know, mm. versions of humour. I mean, for us, it's been a really interesting question of who owns some of that, um, the social media piece. So for us, it's the same people that do all of our customer service, which is actually predominantly done through Twitter and other online platforms, because they know our users. Mm. They're in that space all the time. And I think one of the dangers is if a completely remote team comes to think of something that they think is going to play really well, mm. but they're a little bit too detached by that point from the tone of the mm. conversations that their brand are actually part of on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. And I think you have to have a really strong sense of who you are yeah. and who you are to your users and where you're welcome in that conversation to make something useful. Mm. And I feel really fortunate as a very small company that it's still the same bunch of us around the table mm. and just as many of us who are still answering the Twitter replies. I think that keeps you really anchored. Mm. But I appreciate that's not always going to be feasible if you're one of the biggest brands in the world, you know, preparing for the Super Bowl. You're probably going to have steering committee after steering committee but sometimes you lose a bit of the edge from that. It may even be easier as a smaller company, actually, because you're probably closer to your consumers. And I think a lot of the big brands, they do, you know, they, whether it's steering committees or agencies they bring in, and you know, wacky creatives, you know, charged with coming up with some clever ideas or jokes and so on. But you're right, it, it can see them depart from what their consumers know them for. I suppose it, it's a difficult one for brands to get right. But do you think perhaps that they are focusing too much effort on those areas, given that, as you mentioned before, the success metrics are um, somewhat vague? I mean, I think overall, it's a good thing if they're going into the spaces that people are already in. And for too long, brands have just, you know, foghorned out what they want to say indiscriminately and not tried mm -hmm. to go into the communities and the websites and the social networks that actually their users are in and that and spending their evening. So I think anything that tries to bridge that gap is probably a positive thing. But I think you have to work out what kind of company you are. There are some who can get away with irreverent humor and there's some that they can't. And if you're not one that can get away with, you know, doing it on the fly and being a bit edgy about it, maybe don't try and, mm. you know, intervene in those moments and just do the classy, bigger picture stuff that you're probably really good for. Mm -hmm. But I think that question has been really, you know, apt for us about how to who has ownership over those questions so at the mm. moment we're completely in-house as a comms marketing team and we've had agencies in the past and i'm sure we'll use them again and we've had you know good experiences with the expertise we've brought in but when it comes to waking up in the morning having a great idea and executing it we're still more efficient just doing that ourselves and we still think it's our responsibility to come up with good ideas that connect us to an audience that we know best and that's allowed us to be really really flexible and not kind of drift away from it. But I think mm. then again, it's a, a question of agencies are evolving to make themselves more and more relevant to this kind of changing landscape. It's not a question of sitting there and saying, what's your 12 month plan? You know, where's your advertising? For a company like us, we haven't really ever spent money on advertising or user acquisition or any of those kind of paid metrics. We just go out there, speak to our community, try and encourage them to speak about SwiftKey on on mm -hmm. their behalf and we found that works really well for us mm. uh, and as we grow and mature I'm sure we're going to need to bring in extra resources but I think it's been a, a parallel challenge for the PR agencies to work in a much more nimble way mm. and a much more digital way mm. um, rather than just seeing it as you know paid spend or 
sponsored content on newspapers and say, right, actually, is it going to be a tweet that launches this product? And how can we make that most effective? And just lastly, on the, on the topic of Twitter, from your experience using Twitter and, and, and helping you know, develop it at Sky, any tips for brands in terms of how to write a good tweet? Make them short enough to share. Mm. I mean, things like that are really obvious. Mm-hmm. But some of the actual, I think you can feel when someone is putting out brands content who actually uses the platform themselves, it mm. comes across, you know. I think we're all a bit bored of things full of hashtags that aren't, you know, that just looks a bit marketing speak. Mm. I think for us, we think the replies are as important as the broadcast. And we're still doing it completely human, you know, one to one. So we're not 100% efficient. And unfortunately, mm. we probably don't answer 100% of messages. But one day I'd hope we can get there. But one of the things I've really noticed is that you'll push something out that you're, you've given so much thought to and you've crafted that message and then silence. And it's like someone probably will ask a question about that or want to make a joke back to you or give you a compliment. And then there's just this kind of empty space. And it's like, well, that's where you actually turn that into a relationship. You can't kind of hit and run like that. And we have probably more time spent answering questions concerns, queries, funny jokes um, than we do Mm. spend on the broadcast. Interesting. And the risks as well. I mean, things can sometimes go wrong. You can start getting criticism. You see sometimes these, you know, the backlash that that consumes brands on Twitter. How do you handle those kinds of situations? I mean, I think firstly, Twitter is so useful for that. It is a real canary in the coal mine for you on when something becomes not just one person either misunderstanding what you've said or having an issue with something. But actually, if it becomes a kind of noticeable volume, then you have something to listen to. And I think brands historically haven't always had the access to to that information. They just haven't known until something becomes a kind of critical backlash. So that's really valuable. And we spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. reading through what people say about us to see where the kind of trigger points are and see what maybe we haven't communicated well enough. I mean, I think my main view is that it's just worth approaching it head on. And as many people as you can respond to one to one, the better. People always seem reassured when you've actually spoken to them, told them the truth. If there is a, you know, an answer to give, is it, you know, there's an outage on your website or there's a bug in your product or we're concerned about your approach on something. Just taking the time to say, we hear you, we're listening to you. Here's an answer if we have one. Most people write back going, oh, right, great, thanks. And the kind of issue is over for them. Mm. And I think what drives people to become irate on social platforms is when they don't feel they're being heard. And that's where you get that kind of, you know, ranty thing about about an airline or, a, you know, a shop someone's bought something from where mm. they just start hammering you and trying to encourage people to come together around their hashtag or their idea. And it's because they weren't listened to early enough. And we're all just human beings just doing it on a digital platform. And what you really want is your issue acknowledged above mm. anything else. It doesn't always even have to be solved. Often we can't solve the problem or can't answer it immediately. And that's true of a lot of brands, you know, when O2 had their big outage mm-hmm. you know i would imagine that in the comms team for that first half hour they don't know what the problem is or how soon it's going to be fixed but the sooner they can get out there going we hear, we hear you we're on it we're thinking about it people are kind of neutralized they're like oh okay someone someone knows this is going on and they'll get back to me mm. interesting so just engage and be more human i guess the, the two key lessons mm-hmm I suppose Twitter and its whole approach to promoted tweets is also interesting because of this move in the media towards native advertising and promoted tweets are one example of that. I think just yesterday or the day before the Wall Street Journal announced that it was also jumping on the native advertising bandwagon. I think their 
perhaps one of the last of the, the big major media companies to say they're going to start doing this. Uh, they're going to start, like, like many of the other media companies, you know, they'll start running sponsored content that is somehow connected to whatever the editorial is um, that you're reading on screen. Obviously, it's something that many media platforms and companies are looking at as a money spinner. It's getting a lot of interest. I think The Guardian, a couple of weeks ago, launched Guardian Labs, their own native advertising initiative. It'd be interesting in your take as someone who's worked in the media and, and now also works on the brand side. Is this more hype than hope? I think every news organization is still challenging itself over the business model question. I mean, as it should be. Mm. And, and arguably, they didn't ask themselves some of the tough questions early enough along because they've seen some of these trends coming. I think what the Wall Street Journal is doing is really interesting. It has such a reputation for solid, good journalism, and it knows that, and it will want to protect that. So I think the ways that it tries to wall the promoted content away from editorial will be interesting. For example, I've seen that you know, it's going to be a different team that produces that content. Mm. But the catch-22 for them is that the brands that come to them want the Wall Street Journal editorial prestige. That's mm. the, the value to them. And finding a, a middle ground where your readers don't feel either misled through reading something that they didn't realize was connected to a brand, you know, or that they're reading something that is just not of the quality that they would expect, but also something that does give a return on the investment for that brand. You know, that is a fine line. But I'm sure that these are questions that they and The Guardian and the other examples are asking themselves. They're not unaware of the damage to their reputation if that line seems too blurry to their readers. And again, mm. as we were saying with Twitter, you know, the readers have to remain the first priority because if they do not get those eyeballs into their site or onto mm. their pages, then their brand value <laughs> goes down as well on the paid side. So it's a fine line for them to balance. I find it really interesting now being in a business and again, thinking all the time about business models, you know, what the answer is for those news organizations. I mean, we know that actually apps do make money. I work for an app company. There are many apps out there that are generating income. And yet it's something that news brands have not managed to quite replicate. And I think it's going to take a few more years till we really know whether the paywall model is paying off for some of them. I mean, mm. we know that the numbers are low, far lower than, you know, to open content. But there was a great piece that was going around, I think it actually originated on Pop Bitch last week, about the Daily Mail and its metrics, because their viewer numbers are just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. But this was basically a breakdown of actually, are they making the advertising revenue that people might assume from that kind of scale? Because the more content you produce and the more views it has, kind of the lower the value mm. of your ad spend. Mm. Uh, and I have no idea whether that article was actually accurate or whether the mail supports that. But it's an interesting lesson that even the ones that are attracting every single user on the internet, you know, it's my own mm. guilty pleasure that I find myself reading on the bus in the morning, you know, the sidebar of shame. Um, and they do some great work. They have made journalism really, really compelling. And mm. I go and check that site. Like They've created a really interesting model. I think the challenge for the Wall Street Journal and things is they have a reputation that they need to retain. And how to do that is going to be a difficult question. And I think brands would need to ask themselves if they're going to get the value. You know, I said before that at SwiftKey, I mean, obviously, we're a small company, a startup that's still just growing very rapidly. And we're not in the same um, mindset as some of those big brands. But I would really want to know that if I'm going to spend that kind of money on that content, I'm going to get something useful at the end of it. I'm not sure how the newspapers can serve both audiences at the same time. Mm. Is there a risk here that this is just 
a lot of media companies essentially making hay while the sun shines. And they've seen the success that, for example, BuzzFeed has had out of native advertising. They want to get in on the action and they're not too concerned about what will happen in a few years' time when perhaps the law of diminishing returns sets in. I think they're very concerned. I think Mm. all the people I know in news media take these questions really seriously. And there's some great minds there trying to solve these problems. I mean, anecdotally, as far as I know, virtually every news organisation now has a subset of people that they have tasked with kind of BuzzFeed content. All of them are trying to crack that. They are Mm. aware that the things being shared on Facebook and things are not the way that they're telling even the same story. It's the way that someone like BuzzFeed and Upworthy are telling the same story. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see the success of that. I would put a slightly more positive spin on it as well, which is that traditionally in media, you didn't have the feedback mechanisms that newspapers and news brands have now. You know, on television, there are all sorts of ways of measuring the size of an audience and the same with newspaper sales. But you didn't really know which bits they're concentrating on and which bits they're not. Mm-hmm. And one of the really humbling things about spending a few years working in internet journalism was you get to see in real time what people are engaging with. And mm-hmm. the story you think you've written that is going to set the world alight can often just plummet like a stone, whereas something else will rise through the ranks. And I think we're all getting better at understanding what the difference between those two things are. So while some of those kind of headlines of, you know, 10 things you never knew about something or you'll never Mm. guess what happens next are now kind of being quite parodied and and feel a bit Mm -hmm. tired, I wonder if it's actually a sign that we're trying to serve the reader, we're trying to get into their mindset and we're trying to do it the way that they want it to be done. And actually that's not necessarily a bad thing Mm. after kind of years of being the broadcast mouthpiece doing it the way we thought it should have been done. Mm. Does it risk seeing the reader as, you know, almost like a monolithic presence rather than, you know, different individuals? I mean, maybe, yes, the Upworthy headline is popular with the majority of readers. So does that then mean that the majority of your headlines should be Upworthy headlines? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, what we've seen is quite a lot of those other brands are not going down that route. I would be very surprised to see the Wall Street Journal doing, you know, 10 things you need to know about foreign exchange. (laughs) Although actually, probably that would be a really useful article that I would read and share. So, you know, uh, that maybe they should look into it. I think it's a really good point. I think it's a really good point. And just like we as on the comm side, try and think about the different people in our audience and how Mm. they're going to connect with us. News organisations have to do the same Mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, my parents are not going to click on the same kind of things that I'm going to click on and that you have to know who your audience is and and cater for that. I think the nice thing about the web is the long tail of content that you can produce. You're not as restricted by, you know, newspaper page sizes or an hour-long news bulletin. And you can produce more and you'd hope that you're going to then better serve more of your audience and be able to cover some of those small things that might not be your most clicked story that day, but really will connect to a certain area or a certain Mm. subset of society. And I think that's a really positive thing if it allows more of that stuff to bubble up and a little bit Mm. more diversity in what people cover. Well, indeed. And and I I mean, just the whole public interest angle, you know, a big part of journalism has been has been that, has been the ability to run campaigns, maybe to flag concerns from people who don't have a voice. Now, these things may not get much traffic in social media. I mean, especially when you consider the profile of people, as you mentioned earlier, that are on social media. So does that mean resources are then you know, taken away from what are quite worthy areas of journalism? I'm a bit more optimistic than that. I think mm. one of the things that we found plays really well on social media is individual stories. 
you know, that one person narrative where it's their triumph over adversity or it's, you know, their experience. And actually for issues that are maybe a bit more niche, that kind of fits. And I think one of the things we've seen from charities is trying to take a big scale problem and communicating it down through one child on a poster or one case study. So actually, I think that more diverse news can still get a look in through some of those kind of different ways of presenting the story. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a big issue with shrinking budgets across the board. And I think that's why responsible PR has a role to fill, whether it's on the behalf of a charity or a new technology or a political party, to mm-hmm. be able to come and present journalists with the facts or the nuts and bolts to build a good story rather than trying to com- present them with a completed story which I think is, you know, a little bit more difficult for readers to swallow, mm. still has a role and a really important one and an, an ever-increasing one when the editorial budget and the ability to just spend a week investigating something is really a thing of the past. Mm. And last question, um, do you do you see a situation, as someone who's worked both sides of the fence, do you see a situation where brand content becomes as powerful, as good, as readable as... Um, journalistic content? I think the way some brands do it, we're already there. Mm. I mean, you know, particularly the power of great video, Mm. for example, they're often doing, you know, as compelling content as any news organisation. And I think, you know, journalists are also consumers. We're we're the same sort of breeds each other. There's many, many people on my side of the fence that have also been journalists and they're, they're very similar skills. I think what still remains is there's such value to independent journalism and there always will be. And we all know that those moments of crisis where I may be looking down a Twitter stream and seeing 100 people offering their opinions and a dozen brands trying to join in and and contribute. I'm looking out for those big respected news brands to tell me the truth. And I think that there's still a lot of uh, longevity in that. And as much as I, um, as a comms professional, want to share my message... I utterly respect the difference and think that if we can find a happy medium to coexist and and not impact that kind of neutral journalism that we all rely on, but also find ways to help educate the public about the areas that we're our own experts in, you know, that's the kind of utopia happy medium where we can kind of coexist together. Okay, and that's a good note, I think, for us to end on. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us on the Echo Chamber today. We hope to have you back in the not too distant future. As always, you can get in touch with us at our uh, Twitter handle at Holmes Report, our website, homesreport.com, on Facebook, or you can even call us. Many thanks to TVC Group for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you.